2: Hello, and welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This podcast is for listeners who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean to learn about its past and present. Thank you all for joining me today. I'm your host, Ahmed Almazmi, a PhD candidate at Princeton University. And I'm today with my co-host, Tamara Fernando.
0: For- I am an assistant professor at SUNY Stony Brook.
2: Today we are here to talk to Professor Daniel Martin Varisco, uh, an anthropologist and a historian who conducted ethnographic and ecological research in the Yemen Arab Republic in the late 1970s and returned numerous times in the 80s and 90s as both a consultant in development and a historian. Today, we will be discussing his brand new book, Seasonal Knowledge and the Almanic Tradition in the Arab Gulf, published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2022. The book, Seasonal Knowledge and the Almanic Tradition is the first in English to survey indigenous knowledge of seasonal, astronomical, and agricultural information in Arab Gulf Almanics. It provides an extensive analysis of the traditional information available based on local Almanics, Arabic texts, and poetry by Gulf uh, individuals, ethnographic interviews, and online forums. It's a major feature uh, of the book that it traces the history of terms and concepts in the local seasonal knowledge of the Gulf, including an important genre about weather stars, uh, stemming back to the ninth century, and also it covers pearl diving, fishing, seafaring, and pastoral activities. This book will be of interest to scholars who study the entire Arab region since much of the lore was shared and continues through the present, as well as in the Indian Ocean. It will also be of value to scholars uh, who work uh, on the Red Sea trade networks uh, as part of the Indian Ocean, as well as the history of folk astronomy in the Arab world. Welcome uh Professor Daniel Vasco to new, new books in the Indian Ocean world and thanks so much for taking the time to talk about your book.
1: Well, thank you Ahmed. Um and uh, I appreciate this opportunity and um I and thank you Tamara for uh being the interlocutor uh, for this. Um let me begin by talking a little bit about how I became interested uh, in this part of, of the world. Um should I start? Yes, please. Okay. Um, When I was young, I used to go in my grandmother's attic and there were all these old National Geographic magazines talking about the archaeology of Mesopotamia, of ancient Egypt. And from a very early age, I wanted to be a Near Eastern archaeologist. In fact, my, my undergraduate work um, was in biblical archaeology, Near Eastern archaeology. Um, when I went to University of Pennsylvania uh, in anthropology uh, for my Ph.D., um, it was the anthropology, the traditional anthropology of America that is four fields. So I thought I was going to be an archaeologist, uh, but I was also trained in cultural anthropology, which is the ethnographic fieldwork uh, in physical anthropology, um, and in linguistics. And at the same time, I had a scholarship to study Arabic. So I was trained in Arabic, including um, Arabic historiography with uh, an amazing, amazing uh, scholar, uh, George maktasi uh, I'm very honored to have been able to, to work with him. Um, during my time at Penn, I decided that a very strong interest in ecology. How do we, as 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 human beings, relate to the environment, and how does it affect us? And I knew that in archaeology, one of the one of the big issues had been the major irrigation schemes, and and how civilizations evolved out of that, both along the Nile and in ancient Iraq as well. Uh, but there had been hardly any study at all of small scale irrigation from springs in mountain areas. So the focus of my dissertation uh, and research brought me to Yemen because Yemen is a a great example uh, of of highland agriculture, very successful highland agriculture for for several millennia. Um, Yemen is is the most fertile part of the Arabian uh, Peninsula. And so I went to the field Um, Along with my wife, uh, Najwa Adara, who is also an anthropologist. We we did our research at the same time. Um, And while there, I was pretty much in the field every day with farmers, um, watching what they were doing, uh, talking to them. But at the same time, I had access to a text, an agricultural treatise um, from the 14th century. And it was by a sultan a Rasulid Sultan, a Sultan um, from a dynasty that was very important in the history of Yemen. And I realized that what I was reading in the text was what I was seeing with my eyes, including some of the local dialect terms. Uh, And that's what really fascinated uh, me about the ability to go beyond the ethnography of what I could learn by being there, by observing, by talking to people, to this historical tradition. Uh, I was lucky. I mean, if I went to New Guinea, there there, there are no ancient texts. <laughs> there are no old texts. Uh, whereas in Yemen, there was. Uh, so that became a strong interest uh, within me. And it explains why, as I explain in my book, I consider myself a historical anthropologist. Um, someone who is interested in the present because of it can be informed by the past. Uh, and, and, and that has been um, a, a focus of, of, of my research. So that, that was the beginning. Um, living in Yemen uh, back in the 19, uh, it was 1978, 1979, in a rural valley way up in the mountains, uh, hardly any influence. We arrived just before electricity. <laughs> so uh, it, was, um, it was an, an amazing experience. Um, So that's sort of my background. Amazing. Thank you for sharing that. Uh,
2: In in your long career, uh, you've written about different topics and themes, ranging from culture to Islam to Edward Said. And now you're writing about seasonal knowledge uh, in the Gulf. Can you tell us more what led you to this project and the research process that you undertook?
1: Sure. Um, It started with an interest in in almanacs. Um, When I returned from my field work, um, a friend of mine, uh, David King, who at that point was professor uh, uh, at uh, New York University and and is the preeminent scholar of Islamic astronomy, um, showed me an almanac, an agricultural almanac, from the 13th century by a Yemeni who became a sultan. Um, And this was incredible. Uh, I mean, it it had all this information about when you grow crops, when you do this, and then the environmental information about rain, wind, and all that kind of a a very important ideas, again, from the 13th century. Uh, This fellow also wrote uh, an agricultural text um, in which he said at the beginning, and this is amazing, he said, I went out into the field and talked to farmers, and this is what they told me. That's rare. I mean, I've looked at many, many different agricultural treatises um, in Arabic, and uh, it is very rare that someone uh, actually works as an anthropologist, if you will. Um, so that, that became of interest. My first book was an edition, um, a translation and an annotation of that almanac uh, from the 13th century. A decade later, I received a Fulbright uh, Islamic Civilization research grant um, to go to Qatar. Uh, At that time, there was the Arab Gulf States Folklore Center, Um, and later to go to Istanbul uh, to look at the history of the Almanac in in Arabic, uh, particularly with reference to agriculture. Um, And while I was in Qatar, I Became familiar with the local Gulf almanacs, the most important being of, of Sheikh Abdallah Ansari. Uh, his Taqwim al Qatari was was known. I'm sure was known in Oman as well. Uh, w- was known throughout the region, um, and I had the opportunity to to interview him before his his passing as well, um, and that really stimulated uh, my interest. Uh, and I've been working on almanacs, uh, published several since then. Then in, I, w- I was teaching at Qatar University in 2014 through 2017. And I received a grant from the Qatar National Research Foundation to pursue this study of, of the almanac, but with a focus on the Gulf. Uh, I had a team of individuals uh, who were very helpful on that. Uh, and basically this book is a result both of my earlier research um, when I was at the Folklore Center and the opportunity uh, that I had when I was in Qatar. Um, and I followed through um, as as you pointed out on, on quite a variety of, 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 of issues. Um, I view the book just very briefly as documentation. Um, I didn't write it as a coffee table book, (laughs) uh, but I wanted to document the incredible variety of information that one can um, elicit from a wide variety of sources. Um, Most of the the study that's been done is either only in Arabic or only in English. Uh, There's been very little sort of cross-referencing, if you will. So I used sources that were from Western travelers, sources that were from Arabic going, especially going way back in terms of the almanac tradition, the recollections and memoirs of of Gulf Arabs, um, of my own research and ethnographic experience, uh, anything I could, poetry, (laughs) anything that, that was at all relevant to the subject. And so I hope that the book Uh, will be seen as as showing that there is a tremendous amount of material that needs further study. Um, And I hope it will inspire other people to continue to work, and particularly to work on the Arabic materials. I think a major fault of many Western scholars is that they they don't pay sufficient attention or, or critical attention to what is being written by uh, Arab scholars.
0: Thank you, Dan. That's really, really fascinating. And we'll pick up on hopefully many of those themes. Before we get into the eight chapters of the book, um, we generally like to ask a question or two on method. And I'm going to pick one um, based on the things you told us. I wonder you mentioned to us the division between scholars writing in English or writing in Arabic, reading, say only British colonial sources or um, writing in Arabic and then the lack of conversation. But I think one of the things that is very striking about the book is that it is a transregional history of the Gulf. Um, so it's not only is it not limited by language, but it's also not limited by sort of state funding. So a Qatari case study or a uniquely Kuwaiti story or a Yemeni story. And we wanted to invite you just to say a little bit more about how you are thinking about the trans-regional or writing the history of seasonal knowledge across the southern Arabian peninsula rather than specific to one particular place.
1: Okay. Um, I think I would begin by saying context is paramount. Um mm-hmm. There are similarities, particularly along the, the the Gulf Coast of what originally was called the Persian Gulf uh, and now is called the Arab Gulf on, on the Arab side of it, um, partly because the, the main way that, that you traveled uh, if you're going along there was by sea. Um, and so there was a commonality in terms of the knowing how to travel, when to travel, um, you also had the the, the purling industry, which was found um, not only in uh, in Bahrain and Qatar, but going into the UAE as well. So you had it, and, and and then you also had, apart from Oman, which is, has very fertile parts in the mountains, um, there was very little agricultural land, um, and p- because and there were very few. City. There were no real towns along there. There, there. I mean, once you got out of Oman, there, there, you basically had just a few small ports that you could go into on the Arab side before you went all the way up to Basra. Um, one result of that is that our information from textual history from uh, from historians from even from travelers is far more limited when it comes to the Arab Gulf. Than it is for, you know, the great cities, Cairo and Iraq or, or Yemen. Um, and so that makes it an interesting place to, to focus on, if you will. Now, in terms of, of widening it, um, in, in, rather than just focusing on, on, on one particular area, um, if you, let's take the, I'll, I'll give you an example. Let's take the almanac, the famous almanac, the Taqwim al-Qatari of Sheikh al-Ansari. Okay. He was a Qatari, but virtually all of the agricultural information he is talking about is from Najd, and and it's basically, as I show in my book, um, he was drawing on the work of a man named al Ouni, a Najdi, who at the turn of the of the last century, beginning of the last century, uh, wrote a fascinating uh, almanac. Uh, it was so important that it was the main resource, even for later Saudi uh, uh, almanacs. Um, and if you compare them, uh, you will see the, the strong connections between them. Um, and you have an almanac that al Saudi put together that is drawing on material that goes all the way back to the ninth century of, of Ibn Qutayba. Ibn Qutayba was an Iraqi. Um was actually uh, he was born in Kufa, but he, his, his his ancestry was from uh, from Persia. Uh but he was tremendous uh, polymath. Uh, he wrote about everything. and his his book on al Anwa, which is a book on weather stars, um was widely distributed and has had a very important impact on almanacs, whether we're talking about the Gulf or we're talking about. Syria, talking about Egypt, talking about Yemen, talking about Andalus. Um, so one of the things that makes it important to study this area as a region are the commonalities, as I explained, and the fact that they're drawing on wide range of material that is more or less relevant, not always relevant, um, to the area that they live in. Um, So that, I think, would be the the important issue. I I think there's another point that needs to be made here. And that is that if you look at the Gulf states today, um, they're all monarchies. Um, And they also are very much into promoting, I I understand why, their national heritage. Um, And so issues like pearling or falconry or camel raising, um, these are part of their past. Okay. Um, uh, but as a number of people have pointed out, sometimes they get aggrandized, um, let's take pearl diving. We'll talk about that later, of course, but just to say that pearl diving, you know, there's, a, there's a lot to respect in terms of that history. Uh, but there was a lot of death, a lot of debt, a lot of poverty. Uh, that was a very tough life. Um, nothing romantic about it at all. Um, So that brings us into the whole issue of of heritage. And perhaps we can talk about that at some point.
0: Thank you, Dan. And I think you write really beautifully about what you call intangible heritage and textual archaeology. If you wanted to say anything about method here, blending oral histories with written traditions of formal um, astrological science, for example, before we dive into
1: chapter one, please go ahead. Well, maybe, I don't know so much about astrological, um, but I, I think in terms of astronomy, um, I, I talk at, in there about Islamic folk astronomy. Um, and th- that really needs to be explained. <laughs> First of all, what's folk astronomy? Um, and what I mean, and it's it's not something that you can put real strong borders on, because folk astronomy has elements of, of items Um, observations that are are within the very formal technical sciences that evolved within astronomy. You have have the very, very planetary theory, um, a lot of geometric, uh, mathematical uh, astronomy as well. Um, But when I think of folk astronomy, I think of your average person, your average person. What's relevant about the stars? Um, And here we can look at, well, if you're a Muslim, right? uh, What's relevant about astronomy? What's relevant about the stars? You can go to the Quran and you will see that that there it says that God has given a course to the sun and the moon so that you can find your way, so that you can tell time. Okay? And if if you think about it in an age going back centuries, Um, If you wanted to know how to get from one point to another point, okay, before you had a a compass or or Google, (laughs) um, then at night with the stars, you could plot your way, okay? And certainly if you were on the sea, so there is a a long tradition of navigation. Um, You have the Omani uh, scholar Ibn Majid, uh, who wrote a a wonderful book on that uh, in the uh, Right, right right at the end of the 15th beginning of the 16th century um but if you're if you're a farmer and 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 I saw this when I was in Yemen um you need to you sort of know the seasons i mean it's not and you sort of you need to know when will the rains likely be coming when will there be major winds and and of course the whole region is influenced by some by the monsoons Uh, There's a monsoon that comes out of the northeast and and brings ships on sea from India towards the uh, Red Sea. And there's one from the southwest that goes back the other way. Uh, This influences the entire region, although not, you know, with with differences. But still, it's a major, particularly on the sea, it's a a major environmental uh, impact. So if you're a farmer, away up in the mountains, you need to know, is this the right time to plant my sorghum? Is, is this the best time? Um, in the Rasulid sources, they say the best time, they said, El ashr the, the best 10 days were, were basically between March and April. And, and that's pretty much what they were doing when I was there, but they had a different way of measuring it. They would either look at the rising of a certain star. Now, there's no horizon here, you know, perfect horizon here. There are mountains. So when you're talking about when you observe a star, it's when you observe it in that location. And I think this comes out in, in the work uh, that I describe on Oman calendars. And I, I thank Harriet Nash, who did that, a wonderful researcher who's done re, uh, done uh, incredible uh, ethnographic research on the local star calendars in, in Oman. Um, so you're, you're, and there are other ways of telling time as well. So you wanna know what is relevant for your particular needs. Um, that's different from astrology. There, there certainly were, were many Muslims who practice astrology, but that's a borrowed tradition. That's, that's mainly coming from India uh, or coming from ancient Greek. Um, so when I say folk astronomy, I think it's primarily primarily about the environment, right? And it's primarily about the need to, to know the time Uh, whether you're traveling or whether your your activities, even for pastoralists. okay.
0: thank you, Dan. Um, Picking up on the theme and moving us into chapter one for readers who may not be well worth versed in astronomy, formally or folk, um, can you give us a very basic overview of some of these ways of telling time or dividing up the seasons so terms that come up in the book such as what is an asterism or the ellipses of the moon manazil al-shams or al-amar for those who might not have a technical background but are keen to use some of the tables or become fluent in the kinds of languages that these texts are using can you give our readers a brief
1: overview sure well, well, asterism is simply a, a, another way for talking about stars, um, but it, it it doesn't necessarily mean a particular star. It may be uh, two stars. Um, it's not necessarily um, a you know a a, a whole constellation. <laughs> so that's simply in, in a way that that when you know rather than saying the star of such and such, you can say the asterism. It's just a, a um, another way of saying that. Um the okay, there, there are there are various ways uh in in the Almanac, ver- various important uh, stars, if you will. um you talk about the Manazal. um this is a system that comes out of, of India. um uh, it was not indigenous. i've, I've written about this uh, in several places. It was not an indigenous system to the Arabian Peninsula. Um, it's a system of in India it was twenty seven asterisms or stars, if you will, um, spread along the orbit of the moon. Now, the moon in its orbit around the Earth is very closely allied to the ecliptic, the, the, the orbit of, of the Earth around, uh, around the sun. It's only about five degrees different. So there are stars along there, the zodiacal stars, um, that we we certainly know about in in terms of, of the sun, uh, but it's a, pretty much the same stars <clears throat> that the moon is going through. And what they did in in uh, in India was divide the entire orbit, if you will, three hundred sixty degrees, into twenty seven different units. Now there's also one of twenty eight units, and it was the one of twenty eight units that filtered into Arabic. Now, if you think about that as an arbitrary space, right, and you divide 360 um, by 28, each of those units that the moon goes through in a day, in its, say, 30 days, right, is about 12 degrees and 51 minutes. All right. Um, And so you can say that on a particular night, the moon is in the conjunction is with a particular star within that 12 degrees, 51 minutes. And that's what it is. And in, it starts in the Indian system, um, it, it, the same one in, in the Arabic system. It starts with with Sharatain, which is the part of Hamel or Ares at, at the very beginning. It's a very technical system. It's not one. And e- even um, the, the most famous of, of, of early Yemeni astronomers, uh, a Sufi, in his uh, book on stars, is taking this from the Ptolemaic and from the Indian sources. Uh, the, this, this is not something that was available there. So you have a system of, of 28 stars, fine. And, and once you know a particular star, if you look at the opposite end, you know that it's 14 away, right? So you can, and and then you you, you can sort of do, it's, a, it's, um, it's not an exact relationship, but you can sort of make sense that way. All right, that's one system. Now, what Ibn Qutayba talks about is that those tw- same twenty-eight stars or asterisms, sometimes it's several, like the Pleiades. The Pleiades, for Arabs, with either six or seven different stars. That's why I would call it an asterism. And he says, oh, they were plotted out against the solar year, three hundred and sixty-five days. Now, if you do that, you end up with each unit being about thirteen days, right? Or in fact, if you just divide twenty-eight into three hundred and sixty-five, you get thirteen, and then one would be one of the one of those time periods would be fourteen. This totally arbitrary; it, 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 would, it, it makes no sense. But he, he talks about some he he talks about uh, rhyme, prose, ajah, andes, etc. This was all made up, um, and in fact, you don't. The only people who ever talk about this are scholars. Right. And it became a fundamental part, these, uh, these they're called anwa, uh, in formal astronomy. Now, if you take that word apart, no in the singular, anwa in the plural, um, there's, a, there's a long discussion of what it means in Arabic. And it's very confused. And basically, it appears to mean rain. And we know that there's no mention of, of this particular term, no or anwa in the Quran, but there is in, 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 in the Hadith. In, in the traditions of the prophet. And one of the things he condemned was predicting something or divining by the Anwa. And it's in specific reference to those people who said, we were rained upon by this star, right? But that, that, that's pagan. You weren't rained upon by a star. You were rained because God sent the rain, right? So the association here is with rain. Um, And I won't go into. I've I've written about this. I won't go into the details. But uh, it but it it stuck, and so pretty much every almanac from the ninth century on, you know, relates as do the Gulf almanacs uh, to this system of of manazel as anwa as thirteen day periods. In fact, the the almanac of of uh, in, in almanacs in the Gulf, that's the main way they one of the main ways they divide them, divide up the year. Uh, is is by these, um, so it's, and here you get into this issue that I that I talk about with, in the book, and that is, when we're trying to understand what ordinary people did, how they viewed the stars, when we're going back centuries, the only thing we have to go on are the textual sources, and the textual sources are all filtered through scholars. Sometimes we can assume that it's accurate, no question about it. I I think that's fair, particularly when we see that, you know, later on you find the same information. Um, But other times scholars had a tendency, they always have a tendency to systematize, you know, to sort of make sense of it. And we see so many examples of that in, in, in various fields. Um, so it's, and, and that's why I talk about at the beginning of the book in terms of going back to methods that you need to be very critical of what you are reading and understand the potential for bias, the potential for systematizing, right, uh, and that, you know, we we have to, I mean, we always have to be critical historians. Just as an anthropologist in the field has to be critical of what people say. If if one person says something, it doesn't mean that it's shared by everyone. So it's it's, it's complicated, but I think it it makes it more interesting in some ways.
2: Definitely. Uh, I, I want to pick on the theme of uh, the relationship between religion and uh, astronomy, especially when it comes to al-Milmiqat, uh, so, in thinking about the exact science sciences, uh, in your opinion, uh, or can you give us some overview thoughts on the place of religion in these histories of astronomy and timekeeping, uh, with the importance of say uh, determining time of day for prayers or notions of the night sky as God's creation to help guide navigation, as in the Quran. Um, so, yeah. If we can think about the role of religion in generating, organizing, uh, giving shape to 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 this knowledge, basically.
1: Yes. Well, um, anyone who is interested in this subject of Islamic uh, astronomy at any level, um, the primary work is that of David King. Um, He is amazing. Uh, And he has written an extraordinary, extraordinary uh, book, compilation, looking at at hundreds of manuscripts on how the Qibla was determined. Now, let's say you go to Central Asia or you go to Andalus. How do you know where the Kaaba is? Right. Um, And there were folk methods. Right. And some of the folk methods had to do with with how the wind was coming. Okay. But there were also, and this led to strong developments within Islamic geometric uh, and mathematical astronomy of how to calculate based on the stars. okay? So there was a there was a strong need within Islamic uh, culture uh, to have a an astronomical or a more uh, a more accurate way of determining the Kaaba. If you look at some of the earlier mosques, um they're not properly aligned. They're off because they were they were they didn't have our modern methods. Right? It's, it's, so it's not surprising. I mean, they were more or less in, in the same direction. So the Qibla was was one thing that had a great inspiration on the development of more formal mathematical astronomy uh, on and based on not only the stars but on the planets. Um, the prayer times. Well, there was a, a method, um, because the prayer times are, are uh, you know, I mean, dawn <laughs> and, 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 and dusk, and, you know, that's, that's sort of, you don't really need some astronomical uh, 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 justification for that. Uh, that. That's sort of easy. But what do you do about noon prayer and asr, et cetera? Um, and so there was a, a system developed of, of shadow lengths. Uh, In fact, if you go to some mosques, you will see a gnomon, a sort of pillar. um, And the the, the imam in the mosque or the muwakkit, sometimes called the muwakkit in a formal mosque, would examine the length of the shadow, right, to determine, you know, afternoon, to determine, okay, uh, at what length is is it time for the asr prayer, something like that, okay, and different lengths. Now it turns out that this is very approximate. Obviously, it depends on where you are. Okay, the declination of the sun it differs depending on on where you are. Um, and and then what do you do on a day when it's cloudy? Okay, but it, it's a it's a it's it's an arbitrary way. I think that it was primarily only of interest to. Those uh, officials in a mosque. I, I think your average person didn't didn't do it this way, okay. Um, and, and it's been reported by Harriet Nash uh, as a way of telling uh, time uh, for you know when you have rights to water um, in, in in a falaj system, okay. So there are some potential uses. Uh, David King is convinced that it was. Pretty arbitrary and, and and not that that useful. However, it was a way that people uh, were trying to use the astronomy, if you will. In this case, the sun. Uh, Ramadan um, again. It's based on observation, um, but you know there are there are also, in fact, today it's more based on uh, for some people on sort of knowing exactly when that that moon is going to be visible. Um, So there are a variety of ways in which uh, astronomy uh, relates to uh, Islam. Now, many of the uh, astronomers were also wrote on Islam. I mean, if you take um, El Ansari. Okay, um, he had an education in Islam. He founded an Islamic Institute. Uh, He was very interested. In his almanac, uh, has a lot of of, of, of sort of advice um, and 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 some theology, uh, even in what he was writing. Um, so, you know th- th- that if if you're a Muslim, uh, there there has long been an interest in how astronomy and seasonal change affects uh, the rituals. Uh, that that uh, that you undertake.
0: Thank you, Dan. That's really, really fascinating. We are going to move to the next chapter titled Traditional Seasonal Knowledge, where you tell us about a classical Arabic division into four seasons, so Seyf, Kharif, Shittar, Arbea, compared to the six-season model, which you find in a number of Gulf almanacs. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about the six-seasonal model?
1: Sure. Sure. Um, the idea of four seasons, um, you know, beginning with the entry of the sun into Aiz or a Hamal um, is imported. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't indigenous to the Arabian Peninsula. Um, and if you look at Ibn kutayba that's even, uh, Ibn Qutayba says that. And he says, no, what, what the, the Bedouin did, uh, now he's in Iraq, Um, So when he talks about what Bedouin or what Arabs in the desert did, um, it's not always clear, are those near him? Um, I mean, he does talk at times about Yemen. He probably had access, because he was a very famous scholar in Baghdad, to a variety of individuals who gave him information. I don't know how much he traveled uh, to to gain this information. Um, But he points out that, okay, if you're a pastoralist, what's important to you is the weather, right? When are the rains coming? When can you, you know, when when is there no rain and you need to be near water with your camels? And when can you start to go out into the desert because, or into areas that are more arid because now the rains are coming and there will be pasture, right? And he says that was generally starting in autumn and it was called Rabia. Rabia is, is in the classical System of course, spring, and there but it was called Rabia al Awal, the first, and then there was a second Rabia, and it had to do with the fact that there was rain now. Now they began it at that point, and there were there were other terms for that system. Um, It's sometimes called the Safaria, Safari, Safari, from from, uh, Safra, from yellow. The, The leaves were beginning to turn yellow. So there were terms that were used to describe seasons that related to changes in the environment. And generally, and this goes back a long time, the first rain that was important in the autumn was called bosmi. And in Arabic, it means yusm al-art bin Nabat, The earth is marked, or you begin to see, right, uh, plants coming up. Uh, Now, this term has been used throughout the entire region, even into Spain. And obviously there are differences in when the rain starts, but it is a term for rain. Just as, and in fact, shita and Saif, they're also, and they're also terms for rains, right? Because that's what was important. Now, in the six season model, um, the Gulf Almanacs begin with Wasmi, which is going way back a thousand years. And that would be in the what we would call, it doesn't work out exactly, but in the autumn. And then there's shitta, okay, winter. And then there's Rabia, which is very early spring, even before spring. And then Saif, and Saif, we think of it as summer in the classical model, but in a lot of areas, including Yemen, um, Saif is spring, right? Um, it, it's, it's not yet the hot season. And then they have this season called Hamim, which was a rain which was an early rain in spring. Um, but they're using it here for, it sort of gets mixed up because they're using, uh, act, they're using it for um, for summer. Summer was generally called kaiz. Ghaiz was the hottest part of the year. There are a variety of terms that were used. I mean, let's go back to the ninth century. If you're in the ninth century, and you're a Bedouin, right? you're not reading texts of what they're doing in Spain or what they're doing in Iraq or what they're doing anywhere, right? You have the dialect terms that you have inherited from those people around you, right? You're not reading texts. And so you have a, a, which is true in Arabic, you have such a variety of terms for what we would say is pretty much the same thing. Um, but the idea that's important here is the original idea of having a variety, and sometimes it's greater than six, is it, it, it depends on changes in the weather. And so in the Gulf, you will see not only six, but there are all kinds of of, of local terms throughout the year, right uh, that, that can go up to twelve or thirteen different terms. And in fact, as I document in the book, uh, you can compare, the 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 anwa and the the approximate dates with the local term right and the local term may be meravaina the forty days very very common a a period of forty days um, so you you have all kinds of different ways of reckoning the environment the climate the weather in your particular area which is 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 why when you see one of these terms. If you don't know where it's being applied, you have to be a little bit uh, careful here. But the the, the ultimate um, uh, purpose was to to know the most important thing, which is rains, winds, hot periods, cold periods, and and some of these terms go way back. So there's a term, and I'm I'm sure that that uh, Ahmed has heard of it. Uh, it's called either bar al Ajuz it's the, either the nights or days or the cold of the old woman. And there, this goes back way back to the ninth century. And there are various stories about it. Uh, it, was, it was one of the stories is it was an old woman who warned people, hey, don't, don't shear your, your sheep yet because we could still get cold. And this is a period... Which in all the almanacs is the last few days. It's seven-day period. The last few days of March. Uh, I'm sorry, February and the first few of March, and and this is reported in in the Qatari and the Gulf almanacs as well. And it's still it, it is something that has has survived in 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 local lore uh, throughout the entire region. Um, so it's it, there's a, a plethora one might say. Uh, of uh, ways in which one can define the seasons um, and many, many different terms out there to play with.
0: Then in your next chapter, the range of contact, content in the almanacs, in addition to these major structuring forces like the wind and rain and weather, you tell us about all sorts of other information that is also contained within the almanacs on the humoral system, akhlat Um, foods that are beneficial to be eaten at certain times, behaviors, illnesses, how they might be treated, migratory birds, insects, vermin. Can you say a little bit more about these other bits and
1: pieces that fit into the almanac tradition? Sure. Um, In a way, uh, the almanacs participate in a cosmology, which was... Was pretty much universal. And that cosmology was, as you mentioned, the humoral system. And and that's coming, I mean, it was found mainly coming out of Greece, but it was found in in India as well. Um, And so the the idea is that you can define anything, and I mean anything, whether it is a food or a plant or a disease or, or whatever, on the basis of certain characteristics. Is it hot or is it cold? Is it wet or is it dry? And that was related to the human body. Um, so you had four basic um, um, you, you know, humoral properties within in, in the body: uh, blood. Um, you had uh, phlegm, and then you had yellow bile and black bile. I won't go into the details here. but this was a system that informed and it informed medicine in Europe as well. Uh, that inform not only medicine, but food, but um, how you, whether, when you wear certain clothes, when you don't wear certain clothes, uh, when you perform sex, when you didn't perform sex, um, this cosmology pervades much of the information, even say circumcision. So when should you circumcise? Well, you should probably circumcise depending on, on, on either when the baby is born but in many many cases uh, it, it wasn't then it w- would be when when the baby reaches when the child reaches a certain age um but one of the justifications was oh a good time to do it would be when blood is dominant right so it will come out easier and that would be in the spring in march and so the reason they place that then right is because of this cosmic a uh, cosmo cosmological system um, And so that is is something that is always present. Uh, But then again, any element within the environment that was of interest to people is there. So when certain plants come up, particularly for pasture, right? Um, Animals, when when ants go underground, very very commonly uh, indicated there. When locusts are, are liable to come, Um, those are hard to predict, but there there are ideas about that. Uh, When you're more likely to get colds, uh, when it's more likely to be some sort of of major disease season, um, again, falconry, you know, based on the migration of birds, um, anything that is of interest to a person where they are, and sometimes things that are just of interest, um, is related. You also have in the almanacs. Uh, information that is not about the local area. So, um, for example, in the Gulf almanacs, uh, they don't talk about the Nile River uh, as they do in the Yemeni and certainly in the Egyptian uh, almanacs. But they talk about the Euphrates um, and when it rises. Uh, this is this is found in almost all almanacs. A very strong interest. Well, of course. The Euphrates was the major river uh, associated with the Abbasid uh, period when many of these people were, were writing. Um, so, and, and then you f- find an interest in, 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 in some of these individuals have an interest in, in some sort of earlier events, even some biblical events, like when did, uh, when did Joshua tell the son to, to stop? Uh, you know, so he could continue his his slaughtering. I mean, much of the the early biblical materials, including the genealogy, is of course incorporated into Islam, which sees itself as a continuation of this these earlier uh, uh, religions uh, that, that focused on 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 one God, on Allah. Um, so you know, it's it's it, it's there's an overall cosmological system, but there's also those things that would be of interest to particular uh, writers compiling an almanac. I should say here that there's no particular term defining the genre of an almanac. It's not a literary genre. So sometimes it's simply called a taklim, which means something in columns. That's all it means. Uh, Sometimes they borrow the term ruznama from Iran. in, you know, so so it's not as though it, it's not like you know it, it's not a part of Edeb, and and I think that's one of the reasons why there hasn't been that much study of it. There have been several translations. Um, Charles Pellat has has translated a number into French of of the Egyptian Coptic uh, almanacs, uh, but there's been very little analysis of the information, and that's what I was uh, doing in in my book of trying to trace the historical background. To these contemporary Gulf almanacs.
0: I want to use your next chapter, Dan, seasonal activities on land, which ranges across sort of cattle herding, um, raising camels, date cultivation, to ask you a question about climate history, because you write that um, a historic study of climate data has yet to be written. And while you acknowledge that it's beyond the scope of this book, Clearly, the sources you're using do, as you point out in the chapter, have all kinds of fragmentary but rich records on um, agricultural activities in this chapter and then maritime activities in the next chapter. In your opinion, what would... A sort of ecologically inflected, because you started by telling us about an interest in ecology. How might these kinds of data help us to come up with better arguments about historic climate in the Gulf?
1: Okay, Um, so the textual sources that we have um, can be compared to contemporary knowledge, contemporary lore, if you will. to see if there's some sort of pattern going on, okay, uh, in terms of, of of rain or whatever in a particular area, but the way to really know what the past uh, weather and seasonal change was like is, is through uh, the investigation of, of taking core samples in the soil to to I mean there, there's a whole there's a whole scientific field. That can try and determine what was the likelihood uh, based on either the flora that you find or or other, other aspects uh, at a particular point in history. It's used in archaeology all the time. Um, that has yet to be done in the Gulf, uh, to my knowledge. Um, and so to really understand the environmental change. Uh, you would need to have that kind of technical information. I think also, and I think there has been some work done on this, but it's not my expertise, um, the changes in the monsoons. Okay. Um, we certainly have records in the past century or so about uh, when the monsoon starts um, or when, you know, in, in, from India, from uh, East Africa, etc. cetera. Um, but that can then be used in comparison with what we know from, say, Ibn Majid, or even my uh, the, the Rasulid almanacs that, that I have worked on, uh, that talk specifically about, this is when you start your sailing because of the monsoon winds. And this is when you do not go on the water, right? This is a very dangerous time period, okay? Um, now, that is the kind of, of, of information, comparative information, that that can be matched with the the more technical, uh, archeological work. Um, And, um, you know, and ethnobotany is a very important part of this as well. And I don't think there's been, uh, to my knowledge, much research done on that. Certainly an area where where it would be very fruitful for people to to do work. Um, We know the environment was important. We have this information, we have to be careful when we interpret it, Uh, but to be able to then compare it to what we can scientifically understand about past environments. I think that would be the key. And I
0: suppose in some ways the next chapter, Seasonal Activities on the Sea, which deals extensively with pearl diving but also with fishing, extends that argument out to sea and below the waterline. Where you're essentially telling us that we can recreate more nuanced environmental histories also for these environments using the
1: almanacs, if I understand the chapter correctly. Yeah, um, certainly in terms of, of navigation. But let's take pearl diving. There's actually quite a literature on pearl diving. Um, but usually, those people who write about it in Arabic, that's not translated into English. And those people who write, and there have been uh, some incredible. Uh, Michael Carter has written an incredible book on the history of of pearling in the Gulf. Um, Don't always draw on the the Arabic material. What I do in my book is I give you quite a few different examples, um, both from Arabic sources and from Western travelers about some of the details of the pearl diving. For example, how long can a pearl diver remain underwater right I mean we're talking about having some kind of a, of, a, of a of like a clothespin type thing on one's nose we're not talking about using any kind of tanks here um and you find a variety of opinions uh could be one minute it could be up to two minutes um and then how far can they go down again if you if you read you find all these different uh, uh opinions out there and observations out there right um and I think what you come away with is that that it's very hard to come up with an average and And I think it depends somewhat on the particular area where the diving is going on, how how deep is uh, the, are the pearl beds? Um, you know there and and there was a it's very interesting you you have a book by a, uh Benali, on where the best pearl beds were, and you you have work uh, done by people in the uAE as well on that. Right, and this this is going back to to obviously experience, uh, probably experience over over centuries. Um, so something like that is is it's interesting to look at the variety of information uh, that filters through in the various sources, and and it's important here also not to so focus on pearl diving that we forget something much more fundamental: fishing. Hey, if, if you're living along the coast, let's say you were living in Doha 100 years ago, 200 years ago, right? You're surviving by fish. You're fishing. There's plenty of fish, right? Uh, and, um, and, and you're barely surviving because pearl diving uh, kept you in, in continual debt. Um, but there, there's hardly any agriculture. I mean, yeah, there was, there was some uh, import of, of dates, some very, very few uh, date palm uh, plantations. Um, And there's a a wide variety of fish that were available in the Gulf uh, off of, uh, and and also in in the southern part off of Oman, Uh, and you find information uh, in the sources on the types of fish, um, when they are likely to be fished, when you should not fish, because it would be the wrong time period, you'd be getting all the young ones, Um, and I think that there needs to be a lot more research on fishing and, and sort of the history of fishing um, within the region, because it, in in a way, it was more fundamental in terms of survival for the population uh, than the pearl diving, which was mainly enriching uh, merchants uh, uh, rather than the individuals themselves.
2: I agree, and, and I'm glad to say that uh, one of our friends is actually about to finish his dissertation. Uh, rick scott about uh fishing in the gulf of oman and the arab gulf as well so we will be looking forward to that um we move now to the last chapter about the future of almanic lore and seasonal knowledge in the gulf and i was thinking about the work of uh Nash that you've mentioned earlier about uh, uh basically stargazing and irrigation works in oman and uh it reads in some ways as uh salvage ethnography and this chapter could be also described as a history of technology like the way uh the ways that mosque imams use and require different technology uh, to individual users with smartphones <laughs> the way that printed prayer times and newspapers and other mass media change uh, mm-hmm. on, on on individuals to be able to calculate time uh, more accurately um so can you say a little bit more about your own thoughts on technology, calculation, exact scientists, and genres of time-telling, and whether this can help us to think about the notion of heritage uh, in the Gulf, uh, including that of the recent Gulf almanacs. Uh, do they have value apart from reflecting past heritage, or is it just uh, something nostalgic from the past?
1: Well, to tackle the issue of, of technology, um, When Sheikh Al-Ansari was writing uh, the Gulf uh, Almanac starting in the 1960s, um, he was writing in a tradition that went back, much of it went back almost a thousand years. Uh, In terms of of that time period, the vast majority of that time period, um, the kinds of technological change we have seen, um, okay, we had in the 19th century, we mid 19th century, we had steam steamboats, which uh, had a tremendous impact on the the use of, of dows and that, right? Um, and then you had uh, electricity coming in. You have uh, you have telephones. You have all that. Okay, fine. But you know, up until the 19th century, um, the technological changes that were relevant in the Gulf were very, very few. And then, you know, it was so, I mean, you know, the, the Gulf countries have only been as, have only been separate as, as countries uh, from being more or less linked to the British since, most since the 1970s, since 1971. I mean, some a little bit earlier. Of course, Oman is separate, I, I, I understand that. Um, and. You know, it is the incredible wealth coming from oil and now gas that has allowed an unbelievable rapidity, a rapid change uh, in technology. And I think the change in technology is far outstripped, um, you know, the ability of people to absorb it. And as a result. If you look at one of those those almanacs that I the one I translated, right, um, it's quaint. it's It's not really relevant anymore. You don't need it, right? Now, what's interesting, and this goes to your question, is that the 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 son of El Ansari has continued the tradition, but using modern technology, even having an app, <laughs> having an internet site, right? Uh, And, of course, at the same time, you have the government of Qatar using the the same sort of meteorological uh, data that you would have anywhere in the most advanced countries, right? I mean, they are importing the latest technology, right? Um, And now you have a situation with with mobile phones, right, where you can find any information, basically, you want, Um, if you want to know how to get from one place to another you know you can you can easily do that with with uh, the apps that are available the the such rapid change and the, at the same time a diminishing of local dialect dialect terms are just disappearing right because people they're not being not being uh, they're not learning the dialect except from their family right and then there's a whole new way of speaking right um the way that you would put something on tiktok or on you know the the that young people are using um and a lot of abbreviations um and 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 a loss of, of really understanding uh, fusha classical arabic um i mean that many of the young people in the gulf today really don't have a background i mean so what the, the, <laughs> Americans don't have a real background in, in in the history of their grammar as well. Uh, now, the question is, and that's why I pose in the book, what's going to be heritage in 100 years in the Gulf? Um, and I show a picture, a picture I took in, when I was first there in 1988, of the old National Museum, which was a very traditional building of, of one of the, the previous rulers. Uh, and it had a picture, and there was a, a little lake there, a pond with a, with a dhow in it, right? And then I show the new National Museum by one of the most uh, highly regarded architects in the world. Um, a very interesting design. It was supposed to be a desert rose rising out of the uh, uh, out of the ground. Looks to me like a bunch of spaceships, but I won't I won't go there. Um, that's going in a hundred years i mean right now we wouldn't call that heritage that's very modern right but in a hundred years that's heritage and and in a hundred years what young people are writing on 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 whatever app they're using that's going to be heritage and it's hard to predict what new things are going to be coming out particularly as Technology is advancing at, at at warp speed, if you want to think about it that way. Um, so, the part of it is is really reflecting so, not so much on the history, uh, on almanacs. I think almanacs have, have don't really have much of a role to play, except as maybe when they you add interesting material in it, right? Um, as they as they might have had in in the past, right? But what becomes relevant here is we consider the almanac lore heritage, but what will be heritage in 100 years, right? And, and this is going to be the challenge for future uh, historians, for future anthropologists, uh, for future people who are interested in, in the subject. It's hard to predict, but I think we need to, we need to, to assume that anything is possible of being considered heritage in the future um and so it makes it in my mind all the more important to better understand what heritage was in the past because it is disappearing so rapidly i don't think there is anyone alive today in the gulf who actually practiced pearl diving back in the day before 1920 i think that would be that would be a very old person um so that we have some memoirs, of course, um, but you know that information of people who actually did it before it was just sort of a tourist sort of thing, um, that's gone. So it's very important. And, and, and you mentioned Oman. Oman again, has a tremendous wealth of, of lore that has, has not received much study. I, I totally agree with you. I'm very pleased to hear that there is someone working on fishing. Um, and there has been work done, I should say, on boat building. Uh, that has been uh, not only there, but in in Kuwait as well. Um, So, you know, but there's still so much more uh, that can be done. And I hope that my book serves as an inspiration to continue doing research on this fascinating wealth of material which is, is out there.
0: I think on the contrary, Dan, I mean, if we want to think, you say that maybe almanac lore and thinking about timekeeping on moon sightings is quaint, but we think about, say, for example, the contemporary politics around moon sightings to determine Eid during Ramadan. I mean, these are still highly charged political issues of who does the calculation and whose calculation we choose to use where. And maybe to to wrap up this final chapter on the future of almanac lore, it seems to me that, in fact, a lot of the kinds of meditations you have on the nature of knowledge. So what does it mean to have a formal tradition that intersects with social history, lived working lives, actually has great relevance for new work on the Gulf. So thinking about and thinking in particular of increasing interest in labor histories, both contemporary labor histories of the Gulf, but also historic studies, um, what climate change looks like for the future of the Gulf region. So I think, you know, it's in some ways absolutely not quaint. I think there's, there's huge relevance for... What you posture is the future of what kinds of use we can put sources like this to.
1: Yeah, maybe I should be clearer. Um, I, I don't think that, that that having this, this looking at this knowledge, that, that we should call it all quaint. What I'm saying is that the the almanac that I translated by Oyuni, right? Um, it doesn't really tell you anything uh, that you can't get on your mobile phone. Um, that's relevant for you today. when it comes to Ramadan, yeah, of course. um, but that's not really that's observation. And that's a political, I mean, it's it's a religious, political issue of 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 who sees, what sees. That will continue. There's no question about that. although, you know, the the Almanacs don't say that that this is when you're going to see the moon, right? They will indicate in there, of course, when the official first day of Ramadan is. Um, official, but that doesn't mean that that's when you start the fast. um, so there is a recognition uh that some things are are are, are not. Things that you put in, and and you know the Gulf Almanacs don't talk about eclipses. They don't. They don't talk about uh, a lot of things that that, that other sources uh, have referred to. I mean, I, I read through historical chronicles of Yemen, and they say there was an eclipse on this particular day, or there was a uh, there was a volcano. Uh, you know that that's fascinating, but but that's that's not something that, that, that almanacs. The almanacs talk about recurring sort of events. Uh, and often appear to be written by people who don't really have a strong understanding of astronomy one of the few uh, scholars who really understands astronomy was al Ujayri from kuwait he was trained in astronomy um and and so and he he has um and and there are others who who can combine uh, their knowledge of the traditional sense of of, of how people viewed the stars um, with uh, with modern science, uh, one of the things I think maybe to address your your, uh, your your question here is it's very important to read original texts. Now I have just a couple of I, I have an edition of Iloyuni. I have an edition and a translation uh, of poetry um, as well. But I I strongly advise people to to read the Arabic if they can, because no translation, I'm sorry, no translation ever really captures what the nuance of what is being said. But what I try to do there in giving an elaborate uh, 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 accounting of what so many different almanacs are saying for each of these uh, seasonal markers is to show people the importance of actually reading what these people are saying. Um, okay, rather than just sort of taking one and saying, oh, this is this is this is all we need. Um And so the documentation, to me is as in that second part of the book is as important as the analysis that I provide on the history and variety of lore that is discussed within the almanacs. And I totally agree with you that that there is relevance in much of what is being said for understanding uh, current practices. Um, I mean, we talk about, okay, I I talk there about traditional seasons for raising camels, right? Well, they're still being raised. Um, Although generally with an Egyptian or someone from outside, it becomes more of a, you know, when you're wealthy, as many people in the Gulf are, and you can afford a whole herd of camels, um, you probably have, you don't have local people doing the work. You, you, you're hiring other people to to come in and and do that for you. So that is it, it ties into this issue of social change. Um, I mean, the, the Gulf in particular. My gosh, this is an area where the majority of people, say in Qatar, the vast majority of people are not Qatari, right? So how does that change what was going on a hundred years ago when the majority of people though there were a number of Iranian merchants, were in fact Qatari. Okay, so there are these social issues. The political issues, that's a whole different um, set of variables uh, and how different uh, countries will continue to assess and promote their understanding of what is important in their heritage. um, That will be an issue. Um, And so I agree that it, it, what is quaint is the almanac itself, okay? But the information that it's providing can still be valuable, particularly in comparison with wide variety of other information from memoirs, from, from we can still do observation, ethnographic observation among people. And in fact, that is, we have to continue doing that. You know, sometimes people think, oh, anthropologists, they only, they only go to so-called primitive areas. Uh, or areas that haven't been changed by modernity. That's not true. I mean, we are a separate discipline in anthropology from sociology, and there are a number of reasons for that, right? Um, But, um, you know, anthropologists, there are as many anthropologists concerned about what's going on today and what will happen in the future as they are uh, what happens among a group of people in the middle of New Guinea or in in the Amazon basin. Um, So I hope that, the book I have written, uh, again, I'll repeat it, uh, will inspire people to continue not only but to look for new adap- to adapt new uh, methods to to utilize this information, particularly in combination with scientific uh, work on navigation on the sea, on fish, uh, on the stars, uh, on on soils, uh, on, on water, etc. Yeah, definitely,
2: and if I may add also uh, your work would be of great interest to the scholars of the Indian Ocean and in thinking comparatively and connectedly to other Almanic traditions, and for example, Gujarat or uh, or Bengal or elsewhere uh, in the region. This has been an amazing conversation, and we really enjoyed asking you about the different themes of the book and learning about really a wealth of information that you provide the readers with uh, and in, in the book. And uh, as we move to our last uh, traditional question, uh, I ask you if you would like to share uh, your current projects or what you hope to work on in the future.
1: Most of my uh, work has been done in, in Yemen, as you, as you noted. Uh, and that's where I developed my strong interest in in, in traditional uh, agriculture and traditional uh, in folk astronomy. Um, I've published a lot over the years, but I'm currently working on two books. Um, One is a history of agriculture during the Rasulid era. And I am translating um, the text I mentioned earlier by this uh, fellow who would be sultan uh, from the 13th century uh, with extraordinary details on local production, a number of other texts. I think I probably read whatever I could find that still exists that talks about uh, agriculture. Sometimes tax documents, um, and and at the same time, I'm uh, and there will be an analysis of, of agriculture during that time period. At the same time, I'm writing what I guess you would call a handbook of Rasulid Yemen. Uh, the Rasulids, um, this was a sultanate, a dynasty that came into power um, after the Ayyubid. If you remember Salahdin, Saladin, Saladin. Um, his brother Torancho conquered Yemen in 1173, and they ruled for about 50 years, sort of. Um, I mean, there were other other groups on the peninsula, and they were uh, succeeded by <clears throat> one of the emirs um, whose um, ancestor was called a Rasul, a messenger, who apparently came from Iraq to to Cairo, and they they ruled for 200 years, and they they had tremendous wealth. Because of the uh, of of the Port of Aden and the customs and their and their ability to get taxes on on agriculture. Marco Polo, by the way, called Melek al-Muzafar, the second al Sultan, one of the richest men in the world, which is quite a compliment. Um, and so I'm writing about this time period, it has received very little attention. Um Scholars who work on the Mamluks, because they were contemporary with the Mamluk uh, era in in Egypt and Syria, um, have not paid much attention to the relations which were quite strong uh, and the rivalry between the Mamluks up there in Cairo and the Rasulids down there in Yemen. Uh, And in this book, I I talk about the sailing seasons in and out of Aden. I talk about the local geography. I give a history of, of the Rasulid dynasty. Um, I talk about the history of Rasulid studies, um, uh, which has the been around for a while, but but hasn't really really caught on. Um, I talk about weights and measures. Um, there is a document from, just briefly, there's a document from the end of the thirteenth century, which is an archival text of of items being sent back to the court from, you know, officials and clerks and whatever, mainly in Aden on. Everything coming through the port of Aden, what it was taxed, all kinds of informations on local salaries, what you what you paid a soldier to go from here to there, uh, what you paid to to take pomegranates from one town to another town, the kind of information you almost never see in historical sources, certainly not from the thirteenth century. um and so i and and then then I'll be giving a talk about this at brown university in in a few weeks. Um, there is. In this text, an incredible list of local measures and weights, many of which have never been known before, and they differed from just about every town to every other town, and this explains the differences. It's fascinating. Um, So a lot of my work these days is on this time period, uh, the Rasulid dynasty, 13th, 15th centuries in Yemen, Um, and... um, That's my primary focus right now. Awesome! We will be
2: looking forward uh, to these amazing projects and having you again on the podcast. Uh, Thank you so much for your time today, and thank you for the listeners for listening to today's episode in which we explored seasonal knowledge and the Almanac tradition in the Arab Gulf, published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2022. This is your host, Ahmed Mazmi. I'm your host, Tamara Fernando.
1: And I thank you both for the opportunity to talk about the book. And I wish you both well. Thank you. It's our pleasure and honor. Uh,
2: Stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in the Indian Ocean World.